Welcome to the Two Journeys Podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 13 in our 2 Corinthians Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, Paul's Staggering Credentials of Suffering, where we'll discuss 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 16 through 33. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, as you mentioned in the title, the staggering credentials of Paul's sufferings, um, I have studied church history most of my Christian life. My PhD is in church history. I love reading about what God has done from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. It really has been a trail of blood. The blood of martyrs has been seed for the church in every generation. But in all of my reading of church history, I have never found anyone whose credentials supersede, credentials of suffering supersede those of the Apostle Paul. No one in the history of the church has suffered as much as Paul to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Obviously, we exempt Christ from this. He gets the highest place because of the infinite mystery of his sufferings on the cross. But beyond that, uh, no one in church history who followed uh, has, comes, actually comes even close. Uh, the number of imprisonments, the number of beatings, uh, what he suffered at every level, and then his final martyrdom, uh, in every respect, Paul uh, takes the prize as the one who suffered the most. And because that matters, it, it matters because Jesus said, uh, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. And so Paul had a great reward waiting for him. Also, we need to understand from John chapter 12, Jesus gives us a basic principle of, of the advance of the gospel. Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. And so we have to be willing to die. Now, we're not going to suffer like Paul. But we have to be ready to suffer to take the gospel. One more thing, uh, we don't know what the future holds. When I say so quickly, we will not suffer like Paul, we don't know that for sure. As we read in the book of Revelation, the end of the world will be very devastating, will be very difficult. Jesus said, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. That's how bad it'll be. So in the reign of the Antichrist, there will be many martyrs and there'll be a lot of suffering. And so Paul's example helps us get ready for what may be a very difficult future for the church. Well, I'm going to go ahead and pick up reading in verse 16 of chapter 11 here in 2 Corinthians as we begin our time together. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. 
Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. In this section, Paul indulges in what he calls boasting. And the focus of the boasting is his clearly superior credentials as a servant of Christ. Yet he says he's acting like a madman to say this, acknowledging how out of Christian character this is. So why does he do this boasting and what mm -hmm. purpose does it serve in Paul's life and ministry? Well, first of all, let's contrast it to the statement he makes in Philippians chapter 2, where he says that each of us should consider others as better than yourself. And so here it doesn't seem that Paul's doing that. He considers himself as better than them. So let's keep in mind the context. Paul is dealing with false teachers, and the false teachers are a threat to the church. And he needs to kind of take them on. He needs to go out. He's not the hireling that runs when the wolf comes from the sheep. He's going to go out in the spirit of the good shepherd and meet the wolf and take him on. And the wolf was uh, Jewish, it seems. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? Mm -hmm. I am too. Um, they claim to be Christians. Are they Christian? I am too. Uh, this kind of thing. So they are Christ, uh, Jewish Christians who are leaders, perhaps of the circumcision group, perhaps of another kind of sect, um, but they're causing Paul trouble. They call themselves super apostles, so they're arrogant, uh, saying we're, we're more of apostles than they are. Paul's going to say, actually, no, you're not. And the, this is his official answer to them. And so he does it so that he can protect the flock from the false teaching of these super apostles. But it is, it's so different than what we're supposed to be and do ordinarily. That's why he says, I'm talking like a madman. I'm out of my mind to mm. talk like this, because this is not what we should do. We should consider others better than ourselves. We should, uh, we should elevate their achievements, their accomplishments. The Bible says, let another uh, mouth praise you and not your own, someone else and not your own lips. And so Paul kind of breaks a lot of rules here, mm. but he says, as he does in this text, you drove me to it. I, I wish I didn't have to do this. This is not my home base. And Paul begins by saying that no one should think him foolish. Mm -hmm. Why is he concerned about that? And what limits does he put around the boasting he's about to do here? Well, they're funda fundamentally underestimating Paul. They think very little of him. Remember how they say, you know, his letters are weighty, but when he, you get him in person, he's really unimpressive. And so he just doesn't look like much, doesn't seem to be much. Um, and so they are readily underestimating him. He said, don't do that. Realize that the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit is at work in my ministry as the apostle to the Gentiles. Mm. So don't, don't dis dismiss me. Mm. Again, I don't look on this as an ego issue here where he wants them to think well of him. He knows that all that really matters, all that matters is what Christ thinks about him. He says, I don't care if I'm judged by you or by any human court. I don't even judge myself. Mm. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time 
time, wait till the Lord comes. Uh, then you will see what kind of man I really am. So he, he knows that all that matters is Jesus's view of him. But he also knows at the human level, the human psychological level, there's a link between the messenger and the message. And if they can dismiss the messenger, they're going to dismiss all the doctrine he's taught them as well. And he's fighting for that doctrine here. So he says, do not dismiss me as a fool, because then you'll dismiss my doctrine as foolish too. Verses 18 through 20 tell us more about how the super apostles conducted their ministry. What were they like in dealing with the Corinthians, and how do these verses give some key insights into the abusive ways false teachers seek to dominate churches? Okay, so you just said it yourself. It's abusive. Um, Paul says here in my translation, you you put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantages of advantage of you or pushes himself forward or slaps you in the face. And then he says very sarcastically, to my shame, we were too weak to do any of those things. Mm. It's just not how we were. So these are abusive people. I think that tends toward legalism. Generally, it's those legalists that tend to be abusive like this, uh, harassing people's consciences and binding them and crushing them. Uh, at any rate, whether they were legalism, false teachers, or licensed false teachers, they were abusive uh, in some regards. They were domineering. And you see that a lot with cult leaders. You see that a lot sometimes with just failed church leaders. Uh, we've seen that in recent evangelicalism in America, some, some big-name people who were very abusive men and who abused their flocks with their authority and mm -hmm. pushed themselves forward and dominated and enslaved and exploited. Paul could not, would not do any of those things, but these super apostles seem to have been doing precisely that. Now, in these same verses, Paul severely takes the Corinthians to task for tolerating these false teachers. Mm -hmm. What does this teach us about the responsibility all local churches have for the kind of teachers and leaders they allow to teach and lead them? Fundamentally, this is an argument for what we call congregationalism, which is each congregation is responsible for the leaders that it puts up with. And so if the congregation puts up with false teachers, then they deserve what they get. That's the basic idea here. And so Paul's very angry at the Galatians for putting up with the Judaizers. You know, he's, he's stunned that they have so quickly turned away from the true gospel and embraced a gospel that really is not the true gospel. But they're doing it all under the leadership of the Judaizers, the false, the circumcision group. Doesn't matter. It's their fault. The Galatians should not have put up with that teaching. They should have gotten rid of them. And the same thing is true of the Corinthians here with the super apostles. You put up with people who enslave you and push themselves forward and slap you in the face. You shouldn't have done that. And so basically, this is a call to every local church to make certain that it has godly, leaders that are filtered by 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. Uh, they meet the criteria of godly uh, leaders. They're living godly lives. They're teaching godly doctrine. Those are the ones that you should establish as leaders over you. And then you should humbly submit to them and follow them as they lead. Mm. So that's the dynamic between congregationalism and plurality of eldership, is that the plurality of elders should be followed as long as they're leading plausibly biblically. And I always say plausibly because there may be times you don't think they're leading biblically, but they really are, and you're wrong. And so you have to at least say, is it possible that, that this could be how the Lord would have? And if so, I'm going to follow. Mm -hmm. So at any rate, yeah, this is an argument for congregationalism. Paul is very put out, up with the uh, Corinthians that they're, that they're tolerating. He's put out with them he's that they're tolerating false teachers that are so abusive. Now, verse 21 in my ESV here has a, a paragraph break. So there's the first half where he says, to my shame, I must say we were too weak for that. And it seems like you were saying that that uh, is sarcasm and it's not the only place we see Paul use this. Why would he utilize that 
here? What What's he trying to do in his argumentation with the Corinthians? Yeah, it's a rhetorical technique here when you get this kind of sarcasm here. Usually we would think that's not a, a good way to talk. But Paul did, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what was necessary to wake them up. Mm. does the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where he says, already you have become rich, already you have become kings, and that without us, I wish you, wish you really had become kings so we could be kings with you. Mm. We're actually like scum at the end of the procession condemned to die in the arena. We are hated and and we are the refuse of the world. And so that's where we, the true apostles, are. You ought to join us. So he uses sarcasm there when he says, already you have become rich, you have become kings. They really haven't because he says, I wish you really had been. So he's clearly not saying the truth in the first statement. Here you get the same thing uh, when he says, to my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. Um, he doesn't really mean they were too weak for that. He thinks of that as a very, very bad approach to church leadership. Mm. So he's completely rejecting it. But it's rhetorical technique to get them to wake up and say, look, why are we tolerating these abusive leaders? Now, you mentioned verses 21 and 22, uh, that first phase of Paul's boasting, seeming to imply that these are Jewish mm-hmm. uh, apostles, the, these super apostles. But that leads us into verse 23, which is an important verse if we're to understand this passage. How does verse 23 serve as really the key to this whole section? And how do Paul's suffering for Christ give him uh, a moral authority? to teach Christian doctrine to the Corinthians and and to us all. Well, the second part of your question I'll take first. Um, His sufferings give him moral authority because it makes it pretty clear the only possible motive could be a heavenly spiritual motive. He's not getting anything earthly out of this lifestyle. Everything was better for him in the in the physical material sense when he was a servant of the Sanhedrin, mm-hmm. when he was an, a ladder climbing Jew and was the fair haired boy of of the uh, the high priests, uh, the chief priests, and and the, the leaders of Sanhedrin. There was money involved in that. I mean, they were making a ton of money on temple concessions. You know, all the animal sacrifices that the Jews were making, mm-hmm. all of them um, had carried most of them anyway a price tag. Um, so they would reject the sheep that the uh, pilgrims brought in and they they would sell them higher price sheep that were right there and there were money changers making money on the thing. It was a massive money-making uh, operation and, and Saul of Tarsus at that point was in on that whole thing. He gave all that up, turned his back on it. Why? Because he knew the truth. Mm. The, the Christ was the truth and all he really wanted was heavenly treasure. He didn't care about earthly anymore and that gives him a moral authority. It gives him a, gives him, it's just proof of the truthfulness of his doctrine. Um, the fact is it seems that these super Super apostles were prosperity gospel types. Mm. You know, I don't know that that's what they were teaching, but it seems that they were very successful uh, boaster types. They're arrogant. They looked on themselves as better than other people, um, and they were exploiting the Corinthians. So that means money was coming out of it. All of that. Paul says, "Look, we're not doing any of that." Mm. And so, fundamentally, then the issue comes down to being a servant of Christ. How does that statement set up the rest of it? Well, to serve Christ, you have to be willing to be with Him where He is. As it says in John. Chapter 12. Um, Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. And then he says, um, Where I am, my servant will be. 
So if you want to serve me, you've got to be where I am. And where I am is the place of suffering. As the author of Hebrews makes it plain that Jesus suffered outside the gate, symbolic of rejection by the Jewish nation. They hated him and they turned him out and he was crucified outside the city gates of Jerusalem as a reject. And so the author of Hebrews says, let us go to him bearing the reproach he bore. Let's not look for the praise of the world. And so what Paul's saying here is, I am a better servant of Christ because I'm willing to suffer. They don't seem to suffer anything. They're doing very well in this world. They're prospering well. I, however, my only possible motive for doing this is the truth of the, of the doctrine I preach. So fundamentally, when he says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one or I am more. He's really telling the truth. He is willing to suffer more and to be with Christ, to know him, as he writes in Philippians 3, in the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. These super apostles aren't doing any of that at all. However, this is the very point at which you're like, Paul, you really want to say that. Mm -hmm. Are they servants of Christ? I am a much better servant of Christ than them. I usually don't like to hear that. It's like saying, you know, are they are they humble? I'm even more humble than they are. As a matter of fact, I'm the most humble man you will ever meet. Seems to be, uh, you know, a, a bit of a contradiction in terms. But the fact is, in this case, it's true. They are, I don't even know that they're servants of Christ. He actually says that they're not. They're serving Satan. Uh, but as they claim to be servants of Christ, I'm a better one. And Paul acknowledges the foolishness or the the craziness of this argument that he's making. He says so in verse 21, he says, I'm speaking as a fool. And again, mm -hmm. here in verse 23, I'm talking like a madman. Why does Paul acknowledge how insane it is for any servant of Christ to boast that he's a greater servant than others? The very thing you just mentioned. Well, we'll start with that one statement, let another mouth praise you and not your own, someone else and not your own lips. You know, fundamentally, I think we're designed as Christians to see our own faults and failures in ways that we can grow and see other people's successes and their and their achievements and their holiness, et cetera. I think that that's just the sight that we're given. It's a, mark, a remarkable moment in um, the second portion of Pilgrim's Progress where the Christians notice that each of them is wearing a radiant robe, but they can't see their own beautiful robe. They can only see their own tatters and flaws, mm. but they see everyone else is dressed in a beautiful robe. And so I think that's symbol symbolic of the humility with which we look at our own faults and failures, but we see the successes of others. That's normal for the Christian life. Paul has to turn the whole thing around. But as he says, I didn't want to do this, but you drove me to it. It's because of how these super apostles are behaving. Another phrase in verse 23 that kind of grabs our attention is this phrase, with far greater labors. What's the significance of that statement made by Paul? What does this teach us about his commitment to this ministry? Right. It was hard work. You know, I think about that and it's convicting because, you know, Wes, you and I, we work at a, a, a great church. We love being here. We've talked about how much we love um, this work. But um, I know that I can't carry Paul's shoes when it comes to this idea of hard labor. Um, I get the feeling that Paul worked worked in, in that, well, I've called it before, a three-legged stool. There are three aspects to his hardworking life, especially we see it in Corinth um, where he was a tent maker. And that's what first brought him. There was uh, Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers as well. And so he's there in the community and he's making tents. So that was his job. And uh, before he got some finances from Macedonia and from other churches, he worked at that job. And uh, But he also was in the marketplace day by day reasoning with non-Christians, so pagans, Gentiles. And then he was in certain rented places or whatever teaching the Christian church in the evenings. Mm. 
And so you get the idea of three parts to his life. He's in, in the marketplace debating and evangelizing and working with them. Uh, maybe he was also selling tents there, but he was he was also primarily he was primarily evangelizing. Then part two, he's doing in depth Christian discipleship and teaching and preaching. And then late at night, he worked hard with his own hands making tents. So it's just this hard, hard work. Then if we look at the rest of the resume of sufferings, which we'll walk through in a minute, um, traveling was difficult. It was a hard working life to go from place to place to place to place. That was hard. And so you're carrying your own stuff with you, what you're going to sleep in, maybe a tent yourself. Um, you know, it, it's just a hard life. Uh, he had a very physically hard life. So the labor, the work, the ministry itself was difficult, but then compounded on top of that are all of the sufferings and persecutions mm-hmm. that Paul dealt with. Paul speaks of uh, first his physical trials of persecution by other people because of his Christian faith, which include prison and beatings. What do we learn from this amazing catalog of suffering? And how do these sufferings give Paul the right to speak truth and lead the churches of Christ? All right. So we begin with what happened to his body. And he talks about uh, being in prison. Uh, and it's not just your body, but it's your reputation. You know, he had to he had to tell Timothy in Second Timothy to not be ashamed of, of him, uh, Paul, Christ's prisoner. Don't be ashamed of mm. me. And so there's a shamefulness to being arrested and put in prison. Of course it is. If you're hauled off in front of a huge crowd, it's like you're the malefactor. You're the you're the criminal. You're the bad guy. And that's why Paul in, in the Philippian jail, when they come the next day and set them free, it's like, no, 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 you, you threw us in here without a trial. We hadn't done anything wrong. And now you want us to walk out of town? No, no, you come and get us yourselves. He wanted a restoration of his own honor and not for his sake, but for the sake of the church that he planted. He wanted that church to be held in honor in that community so they wouldn't be persecuted. So the imprisonment, so uh, he, was, he said, I have been in prison much more frequently. I don't know anybody that was in prison as frequently as the Apostle Paul, again and again and again in prison. And you know, each one of those times, you, you could think they could ex- execute me. I mean, it seemed to be a very simple justice back then in the Roman system. They generally just killed you. You know, if you were a troublemaker, they just dealt, dealt with you. And so I've been in prison more frequently than, than these super apostles. I've, um, I've been flogged more severely. And now I could, I think we just go into the resume. He, he says it first, generally, I've been flogged more severely. And then he tells us how mm-hmm. five times I've received from the Jews, the 40 lashes minus ones, 39 lashes. Now, if you can just imagine what that was like, that was basically close to an execution. The execution would be done by stoning. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, but it was everything short of stoning. Mm. And so you imagine being stripped to the waist or something like that, and then the lash starts working on you. Happened to Jesus, of course. But it happened to Paul five times. And so any one of those was enough to kill him. I mean, if he didn't get good medical treatment or it could be, you know, just the lacerations, the bleeding, the infection could be enough to kill him. It happened five times. Mm. And you, you know how hard it is when he's being stretched out for yet another beating um, in Jerusalem and he has to stop the tribune or whatever the Roman guy there says, is it lawful for you to beat a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? And then he stops. And he's like, I don't want another ble- beating. I have enough jewels in my crown in heaven for that. I don't need yeah. another beating. And mm. so it was hard. He also says in Galatians six seventeen, let no one cause me trouble because I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. Those are his scars. He's left physical scars. They left emotional scars as well mm. as he has to be comforted by by Christ in um, Corinthians, in, in Corinth, as he begins his ministry in Corinth saying, fear not, Paul, 
Um, no one is going to attack you and harm you because I have many people in this city. And so what he's saying is, you know, Paul feared he didn't want to be beaten again. Mm -hmm. And you can see why, because it wasn't theoretical for him. It actually happened five times. And so you could imagine them taking his shirt off and they're getting him ready on beating number three or four or even five. And it's like, there are the scar scars from the other ones, but it didn't deter them. They hated mm -hmm. him. And so they flogged him five times. And then there's these three other beatings. Uh, three times I was beaten with rods. So I picture that like a broom handle, sawed off broom mm -hmm. handle, you know, maybe not quite a baseball bat, but you can imagine the bruising that that would leave. And again, that happened to Jesus as they beat him with a rod uh, when he had his crown of thorns on. Uh, but Paul, it happened three times. And so physically, Paul's sufferings were greater than Jesus's, although Jesus' spiritual sufferings were infinite. Um, and, but it's just, it's overwhelming. That's five world-class, horrendous beatings. I don't know anyone that received more than one. I, I don't know anyone in church history. Maybe you could find somebody, but nobody up to eight. And any of these could have been fatal. Mm. Um, and then he he says not just that, but he says, once I was stoned. And that's that's it. That'll kill you. Right. They, I mean, they did it until you were dead. Yeah. And I, I get the feeling that Paul may have even possibly been raised from the dead, that he was in a, in a pile of stones uh, they dragged him out. I think it was in maybe Pisidian Antioch or one of those, like, on the first missionary journey with Barnabas. And they said that they were the gods, remember? And mm -hmm. then they changed their mind and they dragged him out of the city and stoned them under the influence of the angry Jews. So they stoned him and left him for dead. Paul was up preaching the next day. I mean, the resilience was amazing. It is. And, and I just think about what it must have done to his body. Maybe mm. he couldn't walk right again after that, never walked right again. He doesn't say, but that's what his life was like physically. It's it's horrible. And then he goes on from that to talk about just other deprivations. You know, he's he's uh, exposed. He's, you know, insufficient clothing. He talks about exposure or one translation has nakedness. Um, sleepless nights, um, long, long nights, uh, worrying, and it'll get to the anxiety in a minute, but just the anxiety level um, in danger, in danger, in danger, in danger, uh, in danger from everybody. Every category of person you could think of, he's in danger. Hmm. Um, and, and just some of that, most of that never came to fruition, but a lot of it did. Um, and then the shipwrecks, three times I was shipwrecked. Think about that. I mean, what's that like to be shipwrecked? Now we have the account of one of them if it had happened before this, maybe this was yet another shipwreck that happened after this. I don't know the sequencing here, but we have the account in Acts 20, 27 where, you know, for 14 days, I think they didn't see the light of the sun or the moon and mm. nothing. It was just a, it was a hurricane. It was horrible. And they're driven to and fro and everyone despaired of death. And Paul had a leader-like ability to, to, by faith to get them through that, but it was terrifying. And then the ship ends up totally shattered and destroyed and they're, and they're, 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 using the the wreckage from the ship to float to the float to the shore and, and survive um, he says I spent a night in the and a day in the open sea I think it's mentioned in that order because the ship went down at night so imagine the ship going down in the middle of a storm that's what made it go down and you're out there treading water in the middle of the ocean you're like is this it and maybe he's got some some barrel or some piece of wood that he's holding on to, and, and then the sun rose and he somehow got through. I mean, Wes, I, I find it staggering to look at this and think, how could God put one man through all of this? But this is the very thing that he said in Acts chapter 9, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name, mm -hmm. to Ananias. And this was an education in suffering. Uh, it's, it's really quite overwhelming. So really these verses that we've looked at speak not only to the suffering that he endured directly as a result of his ministry, um, 
because he was boldly proclaiming the gospel, mm -hmm. but also just the dangers and the toils and the trials of the road as you've outlined these and as Paul uh, catalogs them here. Mm -hmm. Paul also speaks of the personal pressures of what he carried with him in his ministry yeah. and what that did to his body, deprived of food, clothing, rest. Um, but he's he's also talked about what happened to his mind. So not mm -hmm. always resulting in actual attacks or, or physical things. It seems that uh, there are things that pressed on his mind and yeah. would lead him to fears and anxieties. How is this a weighty aspect of ministry, and, and how should Paul's persistence, even in the face of that, motivate mm -hmm. us? Yeah, I think um, we get this very, very plainly in, um, I think, 1 Thessalonians, where he sent um, Timothy to find out if the Thessalonian church still survived. You know, if they, uh, he was, he said, I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you, Thessalonians, and our efforts might have been useless. So go to the word useless, or as Ecclesiastes says, vanity of vanities or meaningless. Um, just the fear that everything Paul has suffered has re re resulted in nothing. It's resulted in nothing. He said, I don't mind all of these sufferings, but to think it was all for nothing. And that the trail behind me is a bunch of failed churches that Satan came in behind me in every case and through false teaching or persecution, those are the two great assaults, false teaching and persecution, the church was crushed and now no longer exists. Now that's the, the problem I have and, and the, the danger of sin, you know, and he, and he talks about that, that, this, that, that the sinfulness of the people might cause the church to implode, you know, who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn. Mm. And so he's worried most of all about sin more than anything else. The church can survive persecution. It can resist um, false teaching if it can re refute it like he wants them to do here. But if they cave into worldliness and wickedness and sin, sexual immorality and all of those things, his efforts would have been in vain. And he was in constant concern about this. So mm. there's an anxiety here, which kind of belies the statement, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, Philippians 4, 6 and 7. But here he's saying openly, I am anxious all the time for the churches that I planted and even the ones that I didn't plant, but I know about, I'm concerned about them that they, uh, that they would survive. So he has that constant pressure of his concern for all the churches. Paul next turns to this common theme of his credentials, which... Mm -hmm really portray him as a weak, buffeted, suffering man, not a superhero. And he's going to develop this more fully in the next chapter, but yeah. why, is the, why is the boasting and weakness theme key to Paul's concept of his ministry? Well, fundamentally, as he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My preaching were not a display of wise, persuasive words of rhetoric, but of the Holy Spirit's power. Mm. So the basic concept here is my strength is made perfect in weakness. Um, you know, that's my grace is sufficient for you. So fundamentally, God uses broken, weak um, people to advance the gospel of a dead, a bloody dead savior on a, on a Roman cross. That whole message is one of weakness and apparent failure mm. that God causes glorious fruit to come out of unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, a single seed. But if it dies, 
it brings forth much fruit. So that's God's way. And so there's this way of the gospel flourishing through human weakness and frailty and even failure. So that's what he's getting at here. So he just wants to boast, he says, of things that show his weakness. Because, and here's the thing, here's the weak apostle Paul, and 20 centuries later, Wes, you and I are sitting here in a room talking about him. So apparently he wasn't as weak as we thought he was. We don't know anything about the super apostles except that Paul wrote about them. They're nothing. They're gone like like dust in the wind, but Paul's still around. And so through all that weakness, it was really the Holy Spirit at work in his ministry. In the final verses of this chapter, he relates a specific example. How did his being lowered over a wall in a basket and escaping this king in Damascus, uh, how is that a picture of him in weakness? And what final thoughts do you have for us as we wrap up this reflection on Paul's incredible resume of suffering? All right. Well, let me give you a contrasting picture that popped in my mind just right now. I didn't even know I was going to talk about this. (laughs) But toward the end of his campaign in India, um, Alexander the Great was trying to stimulate his weary army to one more battle. And it was a citadel. Uh, it was a fortress. And they just didn't want to storm the walls. They were tired of it. They thought they had enough empire. Mm-hmm. And he was enraged at their lethargy, grabs a siege ladder, runs up by himself, throws the ladder against the wall, climbs up entirely alone, jumps over the wall into the midst of the citadel and starts fighting them alone. That's Alexander the Great. I mean, the courage is staggering. Mm. And he received a wound from which he should have died, but and he almost did, but he didn't. Uh, but you can imagine his lieutenant, his next in command, is like, I'm not going to let him die alone. Mm-hmm. He had unbelievable esteem for Alexander, and he leads a bunch of men out of shame to go over that wall and jump down and save their king. And they fought with him like tigers, and they won the battle. All right, so that's a man in a wall, Alexander the Great running by himself, jumping over the wall, jumping down with with a sword and fighting. All right. Now, flash forward to the Apostle Paul. He is being arrested, or he's about to be arrested for preaching the gospel in the synagogue in Damascus. The king, a, a, a servant of Satan, wants to arrest him. Paul, Paul is managed somehow at night to go over the wall in a basket. So freeze frame, here's Paul halfway down in a basket, in a basket, like, like a bunch of laundry or like, <laughs> like some bread or something like that, hmm. kind of hunkering down or hiding his head or something like that as they lower him hand over hand hand over fist until they fi- he finally bumps to the ground. Oh, I'm on the ground. He gets up and runs away in the darkness. Not exactly a picture of, of yeah. valor. <laughs> and Paul tells the story against himself. You see, you want to know who I am? I'm the guy in the basket. Hmm. That's who I am. But God used that guy in the basket to plant churches from Jerusalem to Illyricum all the way around to what modern-day Yugoslavia or Serbia or Montenegro, some of those Adriatic countries. Mm. You know, hundreds and hundreds of, of people, thousands brought to Christ, epistles written and all that. The guy in the basket changed the world. Mm. Um, even more than Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great is one of the great figures of of entire world history, but Paul's impact is far greater. Mm -hmm. And so I think what he's saying is God uses weak, frail servants, not these superstar, you know, super apostles. Mm 
Andy, any other final thoughts for us as we've reflected on this passage today? Well, we'll get into it in chapter 12, but when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Uh, boasting in weakness, not trying to be, you know, the superhero as the world sees it. We have superhero movies now, you know, with the amazing capabilities and all this glitter and glitz and success. The fact of the matter is just find some way to go die for Christ. Like Amy Carmichael said about her ministry with orphans in India, every day was a chance to die. Mm-hmm. So find some way to die for Christ today. That's something that's a challenge for me and you. Let's find some way to become less, to die, to be weak in some way so that others can be blessed and benefited. That seems to be the lesson of Paul's catalog of sufferings. This has been episode 13 in our 2 Corinthians Bible Study Podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 14 entitled Paul's Vision of Heaven and His Thorn in the Flesh, where we'll discuss 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys Podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.